ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Science, spirituality, and sanity. What can we discover when a neurosurgeon and a neuroscientist discuss human belief and the human brain? Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on ID the Future, we find that out. The neurosurgeon is Michael Egnor, and the neuroscientist is Andrew Newberg in a conversation they originally recorded for our Discovery Institute sister podcast, Mind Matters News. We brought you the first half of this discussion in our previous episode, and today we close it off. Dr. Egnor is first to speak as we dive into it again. Do you see any differences between the um, brain activity, uh, again, in people who are contemplating in a way that is theistic and people who are contemplating in, non, in non-theistic ways? Well, you know, the, the one um, interesting little, you know, N of one study that we did, which somewhat answers your question, <laughs> is uh, we I had a colleague of mine who was a fairly deep meditator, um, had meditated pretty much on a daily basis throughout most of his life did not consider himself to be theistic uh, in in terms of his own religious beliefs. And we said, you know, well, why don't we do this? Why don't you meditate once, you know, while you're thinking about God and then uh, you're meditating on God? You know, what does God mean to you? How do you think about the concept? And then doing that in comparison to just your your other meditation. And what was interesting was, was that, you know, and, and this has to be taken with a big grain of salt, is that when he was thinking about God, his brain didn't do very much. And, and I think that what's important is, is that when you uh, are engaged with something that you profoundly believe in, then that is more likely to cause profound effects in the brain. And when you are meditating on something that you do not believe in, then you, you know, it's just not going to give you that kind of, of an impact. Or you know, if you don't believe in God, even though you're thinking about God, that, that isn't going to have nearly the kind of effect it will uh, as someone who really truly has a belief, and so I think that in general, what we have found is that that people who um, you know who, who do have a more theistic faith, um, you know, certainly activate their brain in very substantial ways, um, very much in terms of you know how they interact with something, as opposed to those individuals who have more uh, of a practice where they are not focusing on a particular thing, um, but just kind of emptying the mind, so to speak. And, and there are differences there, but, but again, part of the issue I think comes into play, uh, and, and, and this is, this is challenging to us is that, um, you know, anytime that we look at someone who has a, a profound belief, uh, a belief in God, for example, then, how does that just change their brain at all? And um, and how does that affect the way in which they think about the world, look at the world? Um, how does it prime them, uh, so to speak, to look at the world in certain ways? And, uh, and in fact, uh, you know, I'm sort of reminded of, of one of our prior studies that I found very interesting where we were showing people different symbols that were either religious or non-religious. And and the religious symbols activated the brain in a much different kind of way than the non-religious symbols were. And then when people had a belief in them, it, it affected them even more. But what was interesting was that it affected it in particular in the occipital lobe, in the primary visual cortex, really before, so to speak, the, the symbol got up into their brain. So it was really affecting the, you know, their beliefs actually affected the way their brain perceived reality, you know, from the get-go. And, uh, and I, I think that has some interest, you know, uh, talking about sort of the, 
interesting theological implications of that. The idea of, you know, if you pray, if you are a religious person, that you actually change sort of, you know, the fundamental nature of who you are. That's what this information kind of talked about. So, so it is possible to do that um, and, and to be able to change you. So, uh, there, so again, you know, fascinating issues and questions that uh, we certainly have a long, long way to go before we can answer all those questions. Kind of getting back to Roger Scruton's quip about uh, the vast body of knowledge or a vast body of answers with, with with such difficulties with the questions. The questions are are so fiendishly tricky. Yes, in the Thomistic um, understanding of the soul, the um, connection one would have with God would be in would be an immaterial connection it wouldn't be um, uh, a material act of the brain so one might even imagine that the um, connection with God would not be something that would show up on any kind of brain imaging uh, but then again cause and effect is difficult so what shows up on brain imaging may be the the material response to the immaterial connection or it could even be um the suppression of uh, of for example activity in the in the occipital lobes perhaps that's suppression of right. visual um, perception to allow an openness to uh immaterial uh, ways of understanding uh so it's so difficult to interpret so difficult to know Oh, absolutely, but but that, it's a ver- you know that, that it's a really interesting issue too, and and I completely agree. You know, it, it, um, when when you talk about uh, you know how the whatever it may be immaterial about our our being, you know, I, I, well, one of the one of the statements that I've always made is that in some sense, uh, one of the most fascinating findings I might have is that somebody says I had the most incredible mystical experience while I was in the scanner. And the scanner shows nothing, you know, then, <laughs> then, right, right, then maybe that, by default, you actually find, you know, the, the spiritual, so to speak, the, the, the immaterial. But right. at least the, the Thomistic tradition just sort of roughly considered, uh, obviously, St. Thomas didn't think a lot about MRI scanners. Right, right. From the Thomistic tradition, one would uh, expect um, there to be no correlate. Exactly. Uh, and, exactly. And, um, so I. I very interesting. The- yeah, but but also, but and, but let me say this also, which is another like another little interesting aside too, which is that you know part of what I think is is an interesting ability to do is to think about how we think about these things. So when we say when somebody conceives of a soul as immaterial. What does that mean? You know, how does a brain understand that, and what does it? You know, how do we engage that uh, in an idea? Uh, part of it is is how does the brain actually? You know, what is the brain doing when it's thinking about an immaterial soul? On the other hand, uh, you know, again, part of what I think is also so important because it just has this sort of it gives it a little bit of this scientific point is you know could we could we go to a church for example and ask a hundred people what do they think? about the soul and you know how would they describe it or define it or what terms would they use uh and and see you know like does everybody say it's immaterial does everybody say it doesn't interact with the brain do people say it doesn't or you know like like how do people actually start to think about these kinds of questions and uh and you know that in and of itself provides some fascinating viewpoints in terms of how our brains think about these questions. Um, you know, we, we did a study for one of our books called How God Changes Your Brain, where we asked people to draw a picture of God. And we said, you know, what, what just pops into your mind when I say, what does God look like? You know, what, what pops into your mind? And it was fascinating to see what people would draw. And, you know, sometimes people would draw 
uh, a very anthropomorphized, you know, sort of like the Sistine Chapel kind of concept of of God, you know, uh, as a sort of sort of old man with a you know beard and flowing hair. Um, other people drew very abstract ideas, um, you know, uh, nature, um, and and fascinatingly, some people left it blank because they said God is undrawable, you know, and there's you know there's no way for me to actually draw God. So, but each one of those answers is fascinating in terms of well, how does the person actually engage in what they're believing in, um, and how do they think about that? And so, so there's some really um, you know to me really interesting things that can continue to be explored as we as we look at these questions what's rather uh, rather fascinating is that uh there's there's a there's a, a, a fantastic book called uh, other world journeys and honestly i'm blocking on the author's name she's a uh, i think it's zaleski so yes 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 i'm familiar with that book yeah <laughs> carol zaleski uh, i i i couldn't put it down it absolutely fascinated me and um what she points out that I think is so intriguing is that throughout human history, um, there have been these spiritual experiences uh, in, in, in all cultures, uh, in all eras, and they seem to have significant commonalities, but the actual content of the experience seems to be determined significantly by your culture, by the world that you're living in, that right. a person living in, in our culture would have a different experience of God than a person living in the Middle Ages or a person living in ancient Egypt or a person living in the Far East. And uh, so that we, in some sense, I think what she, what she conveys is that the experiences that people are having are transcendent and they can't be expressed uh, in, their, in their actual form. We can only express them through, through things that we know in our, in our daily lives and uh, fascinates me. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely. I mean, that that raises a whole other area, which is to me very important in the field of neurotheology, which which is you know the, these experiences. She was focusing a lot, as you mentioned, on uh, actually on on like near death experiences. And right, I mean, you know, if somebody has a near death experience and they see a being, you know, somebody might a, a Christian may call it Jesus, and a, a Muslim may call it Allah, and a, a Hindu may call it Vishnu or something like that. But th- so then the question becomes: Is do they all see the same thing that they are? As you said, you know, or just they're they're describing it the best they can based on on their prevailing belief system, or did they actually fundamentally see something different? Um, and, and in a similar context, you know, people, we, we did this whole online survey of people's most intense spiritual experiences. And some people would say, I felt God. Some people said, I felt a force. Some people felt love. Some people felt awe. Um, you know, again, are they the same experience interpret different, interpreted differently? Or are they, you know, uh, uh, are, are they actually different experiences? And, um, and I think that that's by exploring the descriptions of these experiences, and maybe if we can somehow, you know, get to something that's going on in the brain and trying to understand that, we can see where the similarities are and the differences. Maybe everyone perceives a being, but they just they call it different things. But the being is the is the universal trait, um, or or maybe they, you know, one of the one of the common experiences uh, in these uh, mystical experiences is the feeling of oneness and connectedness with with God, with the universe. So, it, does everybody have that experience? Experience, and if so, what do they feel connected to? 
and uh, you know which are the the more perennialist kind of you know universal characteristics of these experiences, and what are the ones which are unique, um, and and how do we understand those unique characteristics? Um, so yeah, so you know really really fascinating, and and thinking about again you know what's what's really happening in the experience what is happening in the person's consciousness and mind what's happening in their brain and and see what we can do about trying to understand the nature of those experiences as best as possible and of course you know again you know to me one of the most fascinating things about all of these experiences is that uh and we wrote an article on this that people describe them uh as being more fundamentally real than our everyday reality experience. And of course, for the other listeners, you know, we all have that because no matter how real a dream feels uh, when we're asleep, when we wake up, we say, oh, you know, that was just a dream. We immediately relegate it to an inferior perspective of reality. But that's exactly what happens in the context of people having these mystical experiences, which is that the everyday reality then becomes inferior. And I, I don't mean that quite so hierarchically, but, right. but you know, that, that it's not as real um, as these profound experiences. And of course, again, what does that mean? You know, does that mean that they really have achieved a connection, you know, that their brain has connected to a different plane, a different way of looking at the world that it hasn't been able to do before? Um, and, and, or, you know, is it, is it just a manifestation of the brain? I mean, it's, uh, it's really quite fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. One thing we had spoken about a little bit in the last segment, which which uh, you mentioned, which I is, is absolutely fascinating, is the impression that people have when they have spiritual experiences that there is a a greater reality to the ex, to the spiritual experience than there is to their ordinary waking life, uh, and that that's that's a hallmark. Uh, in 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 many situations, people can't even find words for it. Uh, and uh, many of, of the great mystics have, uh, have made it clear that they can't really describe what they, what they experience, but that what they experience is more real than anything they can describe. And people who have near-death experiences uh, very often say that, that what they experienced was, was far beyond. And if you think about it, the near-death experience, if indeed it is associated with a um, with a lack of, of activity in the brain, um, is an extreme example of what uh, Thomas Aquinas or even Aristotle would say uh, is an immaterial experience of the mind. It's an experience of, of the mind that is that is not material. That doesn't come from from the brain. Right. So a, a, an absolutely fat, fascinating insight. Well, and you know the the study of near death experiences does you know here's where you know a kind of neurotheological approach could have some really powerful uh, you know paradigm shifting implications. And um, uh, a colleague of mine um, has actually been trying to do some more formal research looking at these uh, experiences that you know. Uh, Obviously, as you mentioned, I mean they, they they tend to occur when people are near to death. Uh, obviously, the name, and so um, you know the idea of trying to corroborate what are you know well known you know probably thousands of anecdotal stories of people describing the room, uh, describing maybe a patient in another room. Uh, you know, if we can really try to validate that scientifically, that could be quite fascinating. And you know, there there are uh, fairly elegant ways of designing. A, a pretty simple study where, uh, you know, if we go to trauma bays, if we go to, you know, cardiac areas where we know that there's a high likelihood of people who will be close to death, 
and then find out, you know, who has who that happened to, uh, find out who may have had a near death experience, and then you know be able to challenge them by asking them specific questions, maybe having certain things in the room, you know, like uh, one one thought has been to have like a shelf above a bed uh, with some kind of picture on the other side. Um, so, you know, like a picture of the Eiffel Tower or something like that. And of course, if they said, you know, I, I died, I floated up to the ceiling and then I saw this picture of the Eiffel Tower, you know, like th- that could go an incredible long way of of trying to prove that, you know, that there is this immaterial soul consciousness, whatever that goes beyond uh, what the physical body is able to do. And so, you know, there, you know, if we're creative about how we think about some of these studies, there could be some really fascinating opportunities to expand the way we really do think about uh, the world, the way we think about ourselves uh, and how we understand ourselves. You know, cognitive neuroscience, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, I mean, is kind of trapped in this very materialistic perspective, which, you know, I can appreciate. And, and there's certainly a value to thinking about things that way. And, and uh, you know, I know with your background, I mean, obviously, you know, d- doing surgery on the brain and, and, and helping to, quote unquote, fix people who have brains that are, you know, uh, with Parkinson's or, or Alzheimer's or a stroke or something like that can be, you know, absolutely essential to helping people. But, but that doesn't mean that that's all we are. And and, um, and and trying to find that other part of ourselves, there, there may be some really intriguing ways of trying to do that. When I began, um, when I was interested in uh, neurology and neurosurgery as a medical student and, you know, and subsequently in my career, I um, initially thought that I would gain a very deep insight into, into the soul, into what it meant to be human by studying the brain. Um, and I've come to realize that that um, there's much about us that doesn't show up in the brain, uh, and that the brain is an organ like any other, and it's, it's an organ that allows us to perceive, uh, allows us to remember and to move and do things like that and to have emotions, but that there's a very large part of human experience that doesn't seem to come from the brain. Right. Um, the brain's involved in it, but it doesn't come from it, uh, and I've become passionately convinced of that. And that's one mm. of the reasons why I've embraced Thomistic psychology is that I think St. Thomas had had the, the explanation that best fits what I've seen uh, in 35 years. Mm. And, you know, even one of the things that I challenge my students on, would, even if one takes a very materialistic perspective, you know, I mean, this is, it becomes, I guess, in, you know, in the world of consciousness studies, the hard problem of where does consciousness actually come from? And, and I say, well, you know, look, I mean, if you take a materialist perspective, you've got sodium and potassium ions rushing across a, 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 the nerve membrane, you've got, you know, blood flow, you've got metabolism, you've got electrical activity, you've got neurotransmitters crossing synapses. So where in all of that is our thought, you know, where in all of that is our consciousness, and and how does how does one understand that? And and it's really, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a, a, fan, a fantastic mystery. Um, but but that's where also where I, I guess you know I personally feel that just taking a scientific perspective obviously becomes limited based on what we were just talking about. Um, having you know only a kind of philosophical or theological approach may miss the biological piece of it, and so you know that's where I kind of keep coming from in terms of maybe this kind of integrated approach that looks at finding pieces of both, you know, the science as well as the the spiritual, you know, does that, can that push us down the path a little bit more in a way that we've never been able to do before? I, I don't know if that will, will ultimately lead to the answers, but, but I, I, you know, at some point I feel like 
you know, there, there is, so, there's something about trying to find how the, the material and the immaterial work together, um, and, and without being, you know, dualistic and, you know, uh, maybe it even has a sort of, um, uh, you know, analogy to like the quantum mechanics of, you know, uh, we, we, uh, my late colleague, Gene DeQuilly and I wrote an article called consciousness in the machine. And we kind of argued that ultimately, you know, the brain and consciousness are sort of like two ways of looking at the same thing. Sure. And, um, much like, you know, looking at a particle and a wave or it's like two ways of looking at the same thing. So, and now I'm not saying that we're relying on quantum mechanics to, to answer that, but, but that, that sort of analogy of, you know, maybe we tend to say, you know, maybe when we look for, you know, if I do a brain scan, I will find a brain change, you know, and if I look for the experience, I will find the experience. And so maybe they are different ways of just kind of looking at the same thing. But I, you know, again, th- these are the kinds of challenging questions for us to, to pursue and, and to look at where we can take the science and where we can take our, our contemplative uh, processes to, to help us elucidate an answer to those questions. The positive uh, experiences, spiritual experiences that you've described uh, are absolutely fascinating. There, there, are, there are, however, quite a few negative spiritual yes. experiences that people have. Um, uh, anything from uh, you know, losing one's faith to, um, to sin, uh, even to you know, demonic possession, things like that. Have you ever, or have you had a chance to study that, or is that something that you would like to study? Well, definitely something I would love to study. Uh, you know, we, we have definitely thought about it. Uh, uh, in our survey, we certainly found that you know, while ninety-five percent of people, uh, you know, it's an overwhelmingly positive experience, there is that small percentage of, of several percent, five percent, or whatever, who have experiences that are negative. And of course, as you mentioned, I mean, then there's even sort of the more obvious. Uh, you know, joining cults, uh, terrorists, uh, you know, what is it about, uh, you know, going to the ISIS website and saying, gee, you know, like, this sounds good, you know, like, let's, let's blow <laughs> right. people up. Um, so, uh, and, and of course, you know, every, every tradition has had their, had their violent tendencies at times. So, um, you know, what is it that uh, leads people in, in down those uh, very dark pathways? And, and you even mentioned the other one. And again, I'm sure, you know, you've dealt with this in your own practice in one way or another that, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that when people are struck with some tragedy in their own life, the loss of a child or something like that, some people turn towards God as a way of, you know, God's going to help me through this and, and my religious and, and spiritual faith are going to be what helps, you know, to, to cope and, and manage through this. While other people say, how could God do this to me? And they turn away from God. Um, sure. and, and that's, again, you know, on, on a more practical, I mean, on one hand, I think neurotheology has an interesting opportunity to help us understand those distinctions. What is it, you know, what goes on in the brain of somebody who feels like joining a cult is the right thing versus somebody who feels like, you know, just being a, a religious individual who wants to improve the world and so forth. You know, what, what are the differences there? But also there may be some interesting opportunities, you know, on a more kind of, uh, I guess, therapeutic perspective, if you will, to say, you know, what are the things that are going on that lead somebody down that darker path, that negative path? And, and can we actually help to understand that so that we can find more effective ways of, you know, redirecting people into something that is more positive and more constructive. And, you know, there's been a lot of work uh, over the last uh, couple of decades, you know, taking people with, for example, depression and recognizing that there could be a spiritual component to that as well. And that, 
you know, incorporating religious or spiritual concepts into more traditional psychotherapeutic interventions could actually be very helpful for the right person. I mean, obviously, if the person is a very devout atheist, then maybe not. But but for someone who has a rich religious background, you know, helping them to engage that in a way that might ultimately be therapeutically effective could actually be very beneficial for somebody as well. So so there's again, you know, there's sort of this you know ranging all the way from the esoteric of well, what does this dark side, you know, dark night of the soul actually mean, and 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 what is what might it look like to, um, you know, understanding uh, the nature of people who are engaged in these negative aspects of religion and spiritual beliefs to, you know, more practical ways of helping people uh, work through them and and help them to to become, you know, uh, healthier, you know, develop a you know a better um, a sense of well being and and health and in fact uh, the most recent book that we wrote called Brain Weaver, you know, talks about the, that spiritual side of ourselves and how valuable that is and and necessary it is for us to have our overall health and well being. I mean, we have to eat well, we have to exercise, we have to you know do all the other things that that take care and nourish the body, but but the spiritual side of ourselves are. are are fundamental as well. And the the ongoing uh, debate between theists and atheists, it's not uncommon for um, uh, the respective sides to trade uh, accusations of mental illness. That is, that uh, <laughs> atheists will say that theists are, are basically just you know marginal psychotics who are imagining gods there and so on. Theists will say that atheists are sort of autistic with with respect to God and so on. Right. Do you find any um, correspondence between the um, brain activity in people who are either theist or or atheist? With uh, genuine um, uh, neurological disorders like schizophrenia or like autism. Well, you know, I, I think I think the you know to me at the moment, and and while um, you know it, it's always hard to look at a given individual. Uh, usually, we're sort of looking at populations, but um, but there have been some interesting studies that have looked at these kinds of questions and. I'll give you one example. This was not one a study that I did, but um, but I thought you know I think may shed some interesting light on your question, which is that you know there there were a number of studies that were designed to try to help to show that uh, and th- these were people who had some obvious biases against religion that um, that people who were religious were you know not as intellectually smart or weren't as good at sol- problem, solving problems and things like that, um, and they would have them do these different syllogisms or logical problems or whatever. Um, and somebody got very clever and they said, well, you know, maybe it has to do with the nature of how the questions are, are portrayed and worded. And what they what they did, there was this nice little study that was done where they took religious individuals and non-religious individuals, and they had them solve these different logical problems. And they had some logical problems that were more positive to religion, for lack of a better way of saying it, and some that were more negative you know, towards religion. And what was interesting was, was that the people who were religious did really well on the on the logical problems that were positive towards religion, but didn't do as well on the ones that were negative. And the atheists, it was just the opposite. So it wasn't like they did, you know, it wasn't like their their overall logic was better or worse, but it operated in different kinds of ways. And um, another interesting example was that um, they did a study of of religious believers and non-believers, and they showed them um, pictures that had been blurred, um, so almost like a Rorschach kind of thing, but but they were actual pictures. And what they found was was that people who were religious were more likely to see things in the picture that were not there, uh, you know, were not originally there in the picture, but you know, didn't miss things. On the other hand, the atheist didn't see things, you know, never saw something that wasn't there, but sometimes didn't see things that actually were there. 
And so my take on a lot of this information is that uh, I feel that, you know, that the idea of, of, of sort of how we look at the world and how we are biased to look at the world in one way or another is very much is how we sort of shape the beliefs that we ultimately hold. So it's not that one side, you know, has a mental disorder or, or the other side has, a, you know, a different kind of mental disorder, but that, you know, there, there are different ways in which we look at the world. And then that leads us down different paths of thinking about the world one way or another. Um, same can be said of Republicans and Democrats, or even just, you know, in, in academics. I mean, some people are really good in mathematics and science and others are good in the humanities. It's not that one person is better or worse or right or wrong. It's just that they just look at the world differently. And we talked about this a lot in the Why We Believe What We Believe book that, that um, you know, to us, it seems extremely hard to say that, uh, you know, people who have, who are deeply religious, you know, have psychoses or delusions or whatever, because there's just no, I mean, yes, of course there are some people who do, um, but uh, just as there's atheists who do, um, but that, you know, for, by and large, I mean, you know, these individuals are highly functional. And I mean, I, I going back, I, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, this, this study we did of speaking people speaking in tongues when they were speaking in tongues. I mean, they looked completely psychotic and crazy and all that. And then five minutes later, they're totally fine. And these are all people who have jobs, have families, you know, I mean, they're totally normal in society, but they get into this state that is just, you know, so fascinating and unusual. What goes on in the, in their brains when they're speaking in tongues? Well, when there's, I mean, so the, uh, that was one of the first times where we saw that frontal lobe activity actually decrease. Um, and so, you know, cause they talk about the, them not, you know, they say that they are not making it happen. Um, that it is something that is happening to them. In fact, uh, I had this little funny interchange with one of the first people who did the study. And I said, okay, you know, for the first state you are going to uh, speak in English. And then in the second state, you are going to speak in tongues. And they corrected me and they said, no, 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 that's not how it works. They said, you know, I can only get myself into a state in which it might happen. Um, I'm not making it happen. And so uh, we tended to see the frontal lobes decrease in those individuals who were speaking in tongues. And what, what was the was the decrease in the speech area? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in the in the both in the in the larger frontal lobe as well as in in Broca's area about the production of speech. So then the question is, so what exactly? Is making those sounds. That's, I mean, um, that's 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 astonishing. I mean, yeah. that's, and, and, and it, it, it's 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 very consistent with with as you pointed out with the Christian understanding of what speaking in tongues is. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's 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 absolutely fascinating. But it also speaks to the fact that this is a person who is able to enter into a state and then be back in sort of an you know the everyday reality state. And so you know, the, I don't believe that these individuals meet any kind of criteria for you know, psychosis, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're completely normal otherwise. And, and, and some of them I knew very well, <laughs> they were wonderful people. Yeah. I've, I've, I've known people who do that. They're, oh, yeah. they're, yeah. they're very sane yeah. people. But by the same token, let me just flip the question around. I mean, the, that there are relationships between, you know, there, there are schizophrenics who believe that they are the Messiah, that there are people who have temporal lobe epilepsy who have unusual, that's interesting and important as well for us to look at because there is a relationship um, in, at, in certain circumstances. And does that tell us something about, you know, how does the brain work? I personally believe that schizophrenia is the most interesting disease in medicine. 
Um, it's, it's also one of the most tragic. Uh, yeah. it, 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 it robs a person of, 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 of so much of their life. Oh, but, absolutely. Um, it's absolutely fascinating. And I, I have this feeling, I don't know if you share it, that we have not scratched the surface. You know, we, we, we have drugs that will cover up some of the symptoms, but we don't know what's going on. No, absolutely. Do, do you feel, does your work give you any insight into, into mental illness? Is that something that you've been able to address? Well, I mean, a lot of my more traditional work, um, you know, with imaging has looked at, you know, a variety of different neurological and psychiatric conditions. We have studied, you know, people with, uh, you know, head injury. We've studied people with depression. We've studied people with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and so forth. And, you know, so there are certainly overall, you know, changes that are seen in the brains of these individuals. And, and some are more uniform, like Alzheimer's tends to have certain specific patterns. But as you mentioned, I mean, some of the other ones like schizophrenia, which just can be so heterogeneous in terms of what the symptoms are and how they affect people, uh, really hard to get a handle on. And um, uh, and as you said, I mean, part of it is, is that we know that um, that you know it, it, you can give a, a drug that kind of blankets the brain in a certain way and maybe calms them down or something like that, but it's not fixing the fundamentals of who they are and, and whether various combination of spiritual practices and meditation and uh, and diet and nutrition and the right medications, you know, I we you know, we don't know. We really don't know um, what the what these individuals uh, are going through and and how their brain is actually operating, but. Uh, you know, we again, we we talk about this a lot in in our Brainweaver book about you know how does how do we try to maintain a brain as healthy as possible? But once you get into some of these more severe conditions, it is very challenging to know how best to to manage them. And and uh, you know, we we just have to keep looking at uh, at how I mean how incredibly complex the brain is, and and trying our best to understand it and figuring out the best ways of trying to help people manage it in, in effective ways. It's wonderful work, Andrew. And uh, the uh, as 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 you may know, I've 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 had some reservations about neurotheology as as a field because I'm I've I'm afraid that purely a kind of ideologically materialist perspective will arise from this kind of research. But right. it certainly seems from 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 our discussion and from your work that. Um, you're doing it in a way that really is trying to get at the truth, uh, and that's 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 a, that's that's a wonderful thing, and it's a fascinating topic. Oh well, thank you, and and I and I share your concerns too, and that's you know <laughs> I've I've tried to point that out with people when they're when they're heading down paths that are are not necessarily you know the most effective answers to the questions. They have to be careful about you know what any of these studies mean, um, sure. you know. Uh, and I know we're getting close to the end, but you know, even studies where people take different substances like psychedelics, and it, they have these experience. You know, we we have this Western perspective of then that they're artificial and they're created by this drug. But you know, for for shamans throughout the centuries and millennia, it's it's the doorway to open the brain to that other world, that other realm. And you know, again, I I don't know, you know, what what's really going on, but. But we have to really pay attention to all the different perspectives that come out of this result. And there's there's a tendency, I I, I think, in, in in scientism in general, and, and and neuroscience has some of it too. Yeah. To uh, label experiences that people have as necessarily being purely pathological, purely ex explainable in mundane ways, and and that really isn't necessarily even uh, even a scientific way of looking at it because right there have been millions of people who've had experiences like this exactly and to exactly. just dismiss them all as being just on drugs or crazy or something isn't really scientific either <laughs> exactly exactly completely agree
<laughs> well, I am uh, very grateful uh, for for your time. It's been a wonderful discussion, and um, I, I would like to do this again. So, any any time you would like to come back, we would we would love love to have you. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, this has been Andrew Newberg. Uh, he is a uh, pioneer in the field of neurotheology. Uh, I'm Mike Egner from Mind Matters News, and thank you for listening. Once again, that was Michael Egnor with Andrew Newberg, the neurosurgeon and the neuroscientist, talking about science and religious experience, the brain and the mind. Thanks go to Mind Matters News for permission to republish this audio. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.